Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Are these for me? These announcements? Did you already make these? Good morning. All right. Every week feels like the upside down to me. Um, Like I spend the whole week typing out all my communication with people now, and then I get up here and talk to people, and it's weird. I'm going to move this. Can I move this back just a little bit? I'm going to. Bring it. Do I need to go forward? All right. Um, Okay. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, we are, so last week, well, let me give you, let me give you the broad overview here. Uh, we are in a sermon series now on, uh, called Far As the Curse is Found, where we're looking at these covenants that God made, the grand story of Scripture. We talk through these every week, um, but now we're, gonna, we're slowing way down and looking at just how in-depth uh, scripture goes to tell us this story that we are a part of. The, the Bible is not to be... Let me, let me just give you some precautions here. When, if you read the Bible as a, just simply as a list of do's and don'ts, um, it's going to be frustrating. Are there do's and don'ts in there? Yes, there are. But if you read the Bible simply as a list of do's and don'ts, it's going to be frustrating. It doesn't work like that. If you read the Bible in the manner of asking the question, who's in and who's out? That is also going to be frustrating to you. Um, Does the Bible tell us, give us some account of who's in and who's out? Yes, but if you're reading the Bible under that motive, it's going to be frustrating to you. The Bible tells a grand story about the actions of God uh, and and how he works with uh, mankind. And And when we bring our questions of, well, am I like mankind? Yes, you are, for good and for bad. Um, we are, when people say we need to be like the uh, early church, the good news and the bad news is that we're exactly like the early church. We are just as messed up as they are. Um, and so we can find ourselves in Scripture, but we're also told about this great and glorious God and what He does. And so last week, uh, if you weren't at, the, we were at the park last week, which hopefully is not our last time out, but it's not looking good. Um, uh, but we were there, and if you weren't there, the, the sermon was a little choppy. Um, uh, so basically what we looked at is we looked at the accounts of other gods. We looked at the creation covenant that God made with his people. And then we looked at the differing accounts. The reason God gave this to uh, Israel in the time that he did, which was the Exodus after they had been brought out of the land of Egypt, the reason God gave the creation account to them is because they had been taught Generation upon generation, for 400 years, what had been pushed into them was more Mesopotamian creation accounts, other gods. And the way that those accounts worked, there were multiple gods, and they were at war with one another. There was conflict and jealousy and rage and anger between them. Uh, and so when they created mankind, it was usually out of violence. Uh, it's, it's interesting, the, the connection God created Adam out of the dust and breathed life into him. Uh, in the other Akkadian accounts, uh, the gods would form mud, uh, and then they would take the blood of another god that they had just killed and, and infuse humankind with life. And so mankind was born out of violence and out of strife and out of anger. Uh, in the Genesis account, we see that God created man and called him what, class? Good. Good. Mankind was created good. Marriage was created good. You ready for this? We'll get this one next week. Work was created good. So the other accounts, it was the pagan gods that were war. That's how we got this envy and jealousy and violence you basically, your job as a human was to appease your God or the God whose side you were on 
against the other gods, and you had to try to keep that in order. And if you had a pharaoh or a king, it's weird because the, the, the mightiest of the pagan gods happen to have very similar tastes always to the pharaoh or the emperor or the king. Uh, it was really ironic the way that that always worked out, but you had to kind of figure it out and keep them happy. Here we see, in Genesis, we see the God, that God created all things good. But, I, I, but how many of you look around today and say, yes, everything is still totally good? Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Um, so what went wrong? What happened? That's what we're going to look at this week. In the Genesis account, what went wrong? Why do we have this? Why do the nations rage? Why do we have this envy and struggle and, uh, and outrage? So Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read it all, and then um, we're going to try to break it down. Cool? All right. Here we go. Genesis chapter 3. You can follow along behind me. Here's a new character uh, in the story, the serpent. The serpent was more crafty. That's not a compliment. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. We'll hit that more in two weeks. And he ate. The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Again, two weeks, we'll hit that. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Amen. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. We won't address that at all. I don't know what if snakes had legs before this. Not important. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Very important verse right there. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not uh, eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called to, uh, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, 
There is a whole lot that takes place in this chapter from a theological perspective. There's just a lot, and we're going to try to, uh, there's some differing views on exactly what takes place and how it goes down and all this kind of stuff. We're going to look at some high-level things this week. Uh, There's no way we could uncover everything. What I would love to do, honestly, is like to just sit here and go, what are your questions? What are you, what, what are, where are you sitting? What are you thinking when you read this? What, what does it strike in you? What are the questions that you have? Uh, that would be great, but that's not uh, what we're going to do. So I'm going to start, actually, though, by asking you a question to think of something, and I don't want you to respond out loud. Um, I want you to respond in your mind. And if you feel it absolutely necessary that you have to turn to your neighbor and give your answer, that's okay, but don't do it loudly, all right? Uh, what do you think is the biggest problem in our world today? Yeah. Now, if you have a quick answer, I would caution you to slow down on that quick answer. What do you think is the biggest problem in facing our world today? What's the biggest issue There should be a whole lot of digging that goes into that. Even if you were to say, sin, yes, but we would, I would force you to be like your algebra textbook here and not just give the answer. I would force you to do the work on that. What do you mean by that? Uh, There, there is so much to cover. Uh, My, my, um, my uh, pastor in in uh, seminary. One of my favorite quotes that he, he ever gave when somebody asked him, what do you think is the biggest problem facing the world today? This is what he said, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I look around and I know what to do, but where do you start? <laughs> uh, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. All right? I, I put that on Facebook as a, an honoring to my seminary pastor, and he said, hopefully you remember more than that about me. <laughs> so let's just walk through the chapter and see what we, what we get. We're not going to cover uh, everything, but we're going to try to get the main points. Uh, as I said, the, the chapter opens up with a new character, the serpent. He's crafty. Um, and he is, he's kind of like an attorney. He deceives Eve. Eve confesses to God that he, conceived, uh, that he deceived her. Paul tells us that Eve was deceived. But we're not told that Adam was deceived. Um, what we're left with to understand is Adam willfully ate. He wasn't confused. He, wasn't, he didn't necessarily buy in. He willfully ate the apple. He will, willfully ate the fruit that he was told not to eat. But this serpent kind of operates uh, like a really good defense attorney. Um, He starts off, did God really say? Did God really say? I don't know if you've ever, uh, I don't know if you've ever had to give uh, testimony in court. I had to to give testimony in court one time. hoping to give, shed light on the character of the person as I knew them to be. Uh, I knew this person had a past, I knew there was some shade there, but I wanted to give testimony to the character that I knew him to be. And the way the attorney phrased these questions, and the way that they twisted my words, and the way that everything I said was manipulated and twisted, I left there with a pit in my stomach that my words that I wanted to be helpful were now being turned against me and were now more harmful than anything. And I left feeling sick to my stomach. Did God really say to you that you can't eat from any of the trees? Well, no, that's not what God said. We know what God said. That's not what he said. He said, you can eat all the trees. All the trees are good for food except for this one. And Eve says, God said, if we eat that, we'll surely die. And all of a sudden, the serpent, after he gets the question in confusion, then he brings out 
the first seed of mistrust, you're not going to die. And on a technicality, that's not, that's not totally wrong, right? She doesn't eat it and immediately drop dead. There's a technicality there. You're surely not going to die. Come on. And what the serpent now has done is he's gotten Eve to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his word, to doubt his commands. Is God holding out on me? Is there something more than him? And then the serpent appeals to something deep inside of us, deep inside of her. God knows when you eat of it, you will become like him. Your eyes will be open. The appeal is made through two of the hardest sins that we have to deal with, envy and pride. Envy is basically your neighbor has something. Oh, the Bible can also talk about it as coveting. Your neighbor has something that you should have. You need this. Joel mentioned this during the offering, our, our appeal that we should have more and more and more. I can't tell you how many, like, how many iPhone commercials I watch and go, well, I don't have that yet. I need that. And then what's worse is when somebody says, hey, I just got the new iPhone 12. And I want that. Envy, God is holding out on you. God has something that you should have. And then, and then pride, you should be God. You should be the captain of your own ship. Why does he have that and you don't? And then Eve, at a very basic appetite level, it looked good, it was desirable, it would open your eyes to make you wise. So she ate, and then she gave some to Adam, who was with her. We're going to break down, uh, in, in two weeks, we'll break down just what this does to the relationship between man and woman, between Adam and Eve, between all of us collectively, and then how it uh, rears its ugly head in a marriage relationship. Um, but here again, what Paul makes clear, Eve was deceived and ate first, but Adam ate willfully. And then their eyes were opened, and they did become like God, that both God, them, everybody acknowledges that they became like God in knowing good and evil, but it wasn't to their benefit, it was to their shame. Genesis 2 ends with Adam and Eve standing before each other and before God, naked and unashamed. They were naked and without shame. The implication here is, again, that God says, all that I've created is good. In fact, it's very good. And I think, uh, I had an interesting discussion on this this last week. I don't think that they, like, turn from that scene and directly walk to the tree. I think there's an element of this marinates for a while. There is a measure of time where this all functioned well. The way that, I mean, we have two whole chapters, which one chapter in Scripture, a day with God is like a thousand days. So this could have been going on for a while. But God saw what He had, uh, what he had made, and it was good, and they were open, and they were vulnerable. They stood naked before each other and without shame. When they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. All of a sudden, they knew they were naked, and they did two things. First thing they did was they covered themselves. They had never done that before. They sewed fig leaves together, and they covered themselves. And then the second thing they did, they did when they, when they heard God coming. What did they do? They hid. This is a cosmic change. This is a drastic alteration of their relationship with God. This is not the way that they were meant to be. This is not the way they were designed to be. This is not what they had known. Genesis 1 and 2 was trust. It was vulnerability. It was openness. We didn't need to know good and evil. We knew God. What he said was good enough. We could take his word for it. And now, as we've seen it unfold, generation upon generation upon generation, with lots more toys just to make it, just for us to do 
the same things that we've been doing th- since Genesis 4, the world now operates as if we have lost something that we once had and we're doing everything we can to try to compensate for that, to try to find it again. I was sitting down with a friend of mine one time. I, I was trying to contend for his faith. He did, he did not want to contend for his faith, but I wanted to give it a shot. Uh, and he was, uh, he was very much, he's science-minded, and I confessed early on that I'm not. Uh, but we were having lunch, and uh, we were in a, a restaurant with a bar. And he's like, I, d- I just don't, I don't have a, uh, you know, he's like, I just don't believe like in, in sin, original sin. And I just said, look at that bar over there. Look at how many different alcohols there are on that bar. Does that not tell you that we are trying to compensate for something? Yes, it's good. I, I'm not, I'm not, it, it, it can be good. It can be a gift from God. It can be enjoyed in its right place. Like, like a lot of things, but we're compensating for something. Once upon a time, we had something, and now we are striving with everything to try to figure out what went wrong. Last week, we talked about what we were created for, to bear the image of God in the world by imaging him, to bring order out of chaos, to govern over with justice and mercy and righteousness, with the blessing from God that our labor would multiply and bear fruit. And now in one fell swoop that has all been confused and distorted and perverted and we're left to try to fill that chasm with lesser things. Do you know, this this is uh, one of the greatest sins in Scripture is idolatry. Do you know why that is such a, not just an affront to God, but but. Uh, an, an affront to our own worship, an idol is something that is made to represent something else, to pre- represent a deity. We were designed and created to be, hear me in the right way, idols of the Most High God, representatives of the Most High God. Idolatry is when we trade our own position to worship something else that we have made to bear the image of the God that we were supposed to bear. Is that confusing enough for you? We are actually putting something in our place. We are to bear his image. We put something in our place to bear the image of a God that we're bowing down to that is not the real God. We call this, we, we call this at Refuge, we call this the rebel, uh, rebellion. Um, another theological term for it is the fall. The fall can come across kind of accidental, like, oops, I tripped and ate the fruit that you told me not to eat. Rebellion is a much more active role in, in it. Uh, we talk about sin. Sin is a rebellious act toward God. Um, sometimes we talk about sin is a heart that hates God. And I don't want to be controversial about the doctrine of sin, but I do want to like, explode it a lot more because sin is very complicated. Our enemy is very good. And sometimes sin doesn't feel like hatred of God. When you look at their response here, it doesn't feel like they are actively hating God or despising Him. They are covered in their nakedness and their shame. Our hearts are, are our hearts turned against God? Yes. Because when we trusted Him, we didn't have shame. But when we broke that trust, all of a sudden we felt shame. And now our hearts get turned primarily into trying to cover our own shame. They become primarily about us self validation, self affirmation, hiding our shame. Don't let others see just how, how messed up we are. And that plays into fear and insecurity and hatred, jealousy, envy, outrage, lust, uh, violence, politics, you name it. In the very next chapter, the very first chapter in this kind of new world, there's two brothers on the earth and one kills the other in in raging jealousy. Um, I've done this illustration before and you're all going to participate, even if you've heard it a million times, I don't care, all right? 
uh, of, of what took place in our posture. If somebody is coming to give you a hug, you, you guys remember hugs? Okay. When somebody is coming to give you a hug, what is your posture? Do it. Don't just... Yes. It's receptive. It's open. It's vulnerable. And if somebody is coming to give you a hug, and then all of a sudden they go like this, now what's your posture? Right. If you say this, then you're like, you're, you're thinking too highly of yourself. <laughs> Nobody has that quick of reaction. It's self-defense. The opposite of love and trust, what we see in Scripture is that it's not hate, it's self-protection. You can't love somebody from a position of self-defense. You can't love somebody when you are, and you can't trust somebody when you're too busy covering yourself, hiding. The heartbeat of our rebellion against God is this. We stop, we stop trusting Him, and that ruined everything. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with ourselves, and from this, everything was affected. The curses are also consequences. Because of the rebellion, women have pain in childbirth. I'm sorry, I can't. There's, I, that stinks. I, uh, I don't know what it was like before. I don't know what it's like now, honestly. Um, but they have, there's, there's pain in childbirth. That's part of one of the, the results of the fall. I would also argue that that would include child rearing, um, whether that's a curse from the fall or just a natural result of sinful man. And there's, uh, there's conflict in marriage. The role of husband and wife. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's part of the fall. All of these things that were designed good by God are now broken. Because of man, pain and frustration in work and labor, the ground now is in rebellion against our labor. Work was actually designed good, but now we are also experiencing the result of our rebellion against our Creator in that the land and relationships and everything will be an act of rebellion against us, we will now know, unfortunately, what it's like to be God. And for both of them, for Adam and Eve, spiritual separation and death, if God is life, then to be separated from Him and hidden from Him is death. All of creation has suffered from this. The one that was put in charge, the one that was given dominion over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the land to govern over and bless and to bear the image of God, now lives in disobedience and hiddenness and distrust of the God that they were designed to image. So we are affected by our own personal sins and our own personal choices, and we are also affected by the sins of others, the generational sins upon us that we have had nothing to do with, the, the sins around us corporately, communally, If somebody tries to tell you and pin you into a corner, what's more, I mean, this is, this is kind of the nature of a lot of our arguments these days, what's more important, personal responsibility or, or uh, communal help? Is that, yeah, I mean, the answer is both. The answer is both. Yes, we are called accountably to be, per, to be, uh, to be personal response, personally responsible, but we are also our brothers and sisters' keepers. All of that was fractured by sin. All of that was broken and perverted and distorted by sin. All that God made good was broken here. Genesis 1 and 2 has been called the covenant of works. Now keep in mind, this is the original covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. Um, that being said, every, every possible relationship we would have with a creator, a divine being, is going to be one of grace and mercy, that, he would, that we would ever be in his presence, that he would even create us, is an act of mercy. So it's not as if Adam somehow merited this in uh, God's favor by his work, but the covenant that God established with all of creation was one of obedience. 
not like a cold, disenchanted, you just do what I say type of obedience, but an obedience of a God who said, I created the world good. I created you to function in this world good. I gave you a role. I gave you a job and a task, and I gave you a command. That's all in in Genesis 2. And this obedience was a genuine delight in trusting God and knowing what we were designed to do and who we were designed to be. Seven times in the first two chapters of Genesis does God look at his creation and pronounce it good. And the culmination of both chapters, he says, it's very good. And in Genesis 2, God gives Adam three roles. A woman to love and to work alongside, a garden to work and keep, and a commandment, not to, uh, and a commandment to obey. Do not eat. All of this is for you to enjoy. Don't eat of this one tree. And we've said this before, Adam does his best imitation of a three-year-old, right? That tree? The one, that one that I'm not supposed to eat? I didn't want to eat it before, but now I do. People have asked, what does it mean to bear the image of God? What does it mean that man is made in God's image, to be the, the, the Latin term, the Imago Dei? And there's lots of thoughts on this. What is the core essence of the Imago Dei? But one of the things that I think makes this up, what makes Adam and, and all like him different from the animals? One thing that we, I think, can see clearly here in... in um, Genesis, one thing that, it, that is implied of what it means to be the Imago Dei, uh, and this might fly in the face of our day where we are after personal autonomy, God created mankind with the ability to resist their appetite, to not just function on see the food, eat the food. I said last week, we, we got a new dog, and our, our dog is not a, we adopted a dog, and uh, he's pretty finicky about what he eats, um, but I've been around enough dogs, I was kind of disappointed, because you usually get a dog to replace the vacuum cleaner, right, especially for hardwood floors. You drop any food on the ground, and they take care of it. See the food, eat the food. A distinction of man is the ability to resist. I am not just governed by my appetite, I am governed by my obedience and delight in God. The command not to eat the fruit was not just a litmus test for God that God put out there. It was actually part of the divine order and creation of who mankind was. Here is a command for you to obey. This is an opportunity for you to trust me that I am better than, your, than just see the food, eat the food. I am better than your animal instinct. Giving you, making you in my image, I gave you the opportunity, the possibility to trust me more than just your eyes and what you see. I gave you the ability to discern and not eat the fruit of the knowledge of, tr- of good and evil because God said so and God is good. So this covenant with God was an opportunity to trust him The covenant of works is broken by Adam and Eve's sin. This is the first sin. This is what we call original sin. This is what we inherit from our father, Adam. We're not taught this. Nobody went to school to learn how to sin. Um, If you've ever had uh, a child right about the age of the end of, of the twos and the beginning of the threes, you never had to sit that child down and say, what I want you to start doing is I would like for you to start screaming no at every question I ask you. And when somebody else has a toy that you would like, what I would really encourage you to do is to go grab that out of their hands and yell mine. Has any parent had to give their kid that lesson? Okay, good. This is what's passed down. 
This is what terms like original sin. Um, this is our, when we talk about our hearts being turned against God. The image here is one of Adam and all who come after him willfully having disobeyed God and now hiding in shame and fear. So how does God respond to this? Verses 8 and 9 in Genesis chapter 2, I think, are the darkest and brightest verses in the Bible, potentially. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? God comes back to the garden. Adam and Eve have hidden themselves. Can you imagine, for the first time, every time they had heard him coming, the, the, the implication is they rejoiced in that. They delighted, and it was an eager anticipation of the coming of God to, to walk in the cool of the garden. But this time, they hid. Not only did they hide, but they hid because they were afraid. But here's the great news. God comes back. He doesn't end the story there. He doesn't... Thanos? Is that right? Okay. Look at me pulling a Marvel movie out. All right? Uh, that's what he could have done. He doesn't. He comes back, and the first lines that he uses in, these new, in this new relationship is a question. This is something God does often as he asks questions. This is something that Jesus does. Too often we want firm, concrete answers. Uh, sometimes we want concrete answers so that we can dance around them. Sometimes we want them because to have a firm, concrete answer, then we don't necessarily have to trust, right? If the Bible is just a book of instructions of what to do and what not to do, then I can just do those and not do those, and I get to be my own God. I don't actually have to depend on God. But that's not how he sets it up. He comes and he asks a question. Uh, and if you, if you think, well, I don't do that, if you, if you don't believe me, um, that that's not the way we approach like concrete things. I was a youth minister for a while, a short while, uh, and I was in a youth group before that. And do you know what the number one question that every teenager asks a youth minister, how far is too far? Another way to put that is how much can I get away with? And because youth ministers are dumb sometimes, we try to give answers. I got to college, my New Testament professor said, those are so, those are so stupid. Um, the Bible says to flee from sexual immorality, flee from sexual temptation. I was like, oh, yeah, why did I give an answer? Throughout Scripture, God asks questions that both expose what we're trying to get away with, but also invite us to trust Him. Adam, where are you? This is not because God doesn't know. He's not confused. God is at inviting Adam to admit that he's hiding, to expose. Now, I'm not very good at this, but I think one of the best forms of sharing the gospel that there could be is to ask questions. Too often we can get away, and, and sometimes Christians are trained to give pat answers, right? I think we would do much better to ask better questions. And something else that I've been, especially in our present situation, is presume people's position. Presume their motives. God could have come in, guns blazing, calling Adam out, but he didn't. This is the image, this is the creator that we are called to image. He asks, Adam, where are you? He's inviting Adam to participate in what will now become a cosmic redemption. And Adam responds, I'm hiding because I heard you coming, and I was naked, and I was afraid. That's actually a good answer, I think. It's accurate. It's sad. How many of us would be willing to be honest about where we are, especially right now, in these troubled times? I'm tired. I feel lost right now. I need help. 
what you said or what you did really hurt. I'm afraid. If Adam, if this would have taken place in present day, probably a contemporary answer for Adam would have been, I'm fine. But what he gives is actually a good answer. And so God helping Adam admit that he's hiding to confess where he is, this is a part, and it's a huge part, but it's incomplete. And in some cases, we've gotten past this hurdle. We've learned how to say, this is where I'm at, this is what I'm feeling. And I think that's good, but that's incomplete. That's not done. The second part, the second step is, is even harder. Step two is where it gets tricky. God said, who told you you were naked? Now, this is my edit here. The only way you would have known that you were naked is if you ate the fruit that I told you not to eat, Adam. Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? This is a much harder question because it invites Adam to confess his guilt, not only where he is, but what he's done wrong. What if Adam was honest before God? Yes, I did. I did it. I did what you told me not to do. Have mercy on me. What stops us from being honest before God? Not like indifferent honest, yeah, I did it, but like trusting honest. Adam is basically standing there like the videos of the three-year-old next to the brownie mix with his face covered in brownie and all over his hands and the brownie pan being torn through saying, I didn't do it. It's cute when you're three. It's pathetic when you're 45. All creation beckons, Adam, please say yes. Say yes, I did it. Have mercy on me. And I don't know, I, I don't, would it change anything at that point? Had the, the sin already been done? Uh, could trust have been restored? I don't know. I think it's probably to show what had already taken place in Adam's heart. God, I don't trust you anymore. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Serpent loses his legs. Again, I don't know why. Um, and what is confirmed in this moment is that Adam, mankind, Adam, no longer delights in the presence of the Lord, no longer enjoys the commandments and blessings of the Lord, but is hidden from God. He no longer trusts God. God is life, and to hide and be separated from Him is death. And this breeds every wrongdoing we can fathom. We live in a day and age, we live in a day and age where justice is something that is probably the most talked about that it's ever been in history. All across the world. I don't think, I don't know that things are actually I don't think things are worse than they were 50 years ago. I think we are, in a good way, more sensitive now to the wrongdoings that have taken place. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind, and I think some things have gotten quite a bit better globally across the, across the world, but it sure doesn't feel that way. We are, we are more active about the idea of justice now than we ever have been, and I think that's a good thing, and yet, even in active, being active for justice, the hate toward our fellow man is just as strong as it's ever been. It seems impossible and so far away. All of these things, all of these nuances and complexities fall out of this one moment. So what is, what is our hope? I, this, uh, this could have been about three sermons. Let me, let me, I'm going to give you a very quick sentence here, okay? A couple of sentences, two, th maybe three or four. Um, Genesis 3.15, there is a promise. There will be an offspring for the first time. It's not going to end here. There's going to be an offspring. And not only that, but there's going to be a battle between your offspring and the serpent once again. And it's going to bruise his heel. He will face pain, but it's going to crush the serpent. So this offspring will come along and will do what Adam failed to do. And then we get a picture of that in verse 21, where God has to slaughter an animal, take the skin of an animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so we get a picture that there will come a second Adam, 
who, as we now know, will live perfectly on our behalf, will die brutally in our place so that we might receive reconciliation. Somebody who lives perfectly on our behalf so that we could actually be reconciled to this God, so that we could actually walk whole again in the cool of the morning in openness and trust and vulnerability. Somebody had to pay the price for our shame. And that's what Jesus has done. But the keys to that kingdom still lie within those two questions. Where are you? And will will you confess to me? Will you be honest with me? And this is not to expose us to put us to shame. It's actually to expose our shame to put it to death so that we can trust God once again. So, where are you hiding? These are two questions to maybe wrestle with this week. This is hard for me. I hide. Uh, I avoid pressing in and trusting God with a whole lot of reality and, and hard things, and it is, it is a labor to do that. Kind of the devil you know is better than the one that you don't. Like, the things that I hide behind, performance, distraction, uh, I hide behind cynicism. The cynic never has to be wrong. Some of us, we hide behind our resumes. We can hide behind our accomplishments. We hide behind our strong opinions. We hide behind our political ideologies. We hide behind our sarcasm, our doctrine. A lot of us, we're kind of taught to hide behind religion. Even good religion, we can hide behind that for sure. We can hide behind our answers that avoid us to have to come before God and confess. There's a great irony to this that one of the hardest places to confess and to be vulnerable and to risk coming out of hiding is the church. Isn't that ironic? It's the last place you want to be imperfect. It's the last place you want to be broken. We come out of hiding, and then God beckons us with the second question. Did you do what I told you not to do? An invitation to be honest with God, to renew trust with him, to confess, to bring out of darkness. It's easy for us to blame Blame and outrage are convenient ways for us to keep from having to address our own junk before God. There's an old story that G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was a a, a Catholic author and writer, uh, was asked a a question for the local paper, and they said, "What's what's the biggest problem in the world today? And his response was quite simple, I am. To confess before God and to confess before one another, I've said this before, let me say it again, don't be shocked to find out that fellow followers of Jesus are sinful. If somebody confesses to you, that is a privilege. That means they actually trust you. And the first response to a confession can be a hug. It doesn't have to be an instruction manual on how to fix it. Some of mine, God, I fail to believe you. I fail to believe that you are actually better than my hiddenness. Sometimes I fail, sometimes I refuse. Sometimes I just want to do my own thing. Sometimes I struggle to uh, believe that forgiveness Is, is really that powerful. Sometimes I, refu- I, I fail to or refuse to take God at his word. I know you forgive this and this and this and this and this, but, but I... 
First John invites us. This is the essence of First John. To not walk in darkness, to not walk in hiddenness. Sin will thrive in hiddenness. Sin will hurt people. It already is. Confessing it will also hurt, but, it, but it, it, it's already hurting other people when it's not confessed. To confess sin uh, and to walk in this openness and vulnerability toward healing, this is what creates a humble heart that we can then walk in obedience to God. First John invites us not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light as he is in the light. This doesn't mean get your stuff together. It means be open and be vulnerable. And this, we'll wrap it up with this. This is how we are reconciled to God. This is how we walk in proper response to God. This is how we walk in actually believing him again. This is how we walk in a, new, in a, in a renewed trust. This is, how we, this is how shame is defeated. It's how shame is put to death. And it's hard, but what it requires, what it calls is an, an, a full-out trust of God, even in our darkest sin, that he has met us there, loved us there, knows it already, and can forgive us and restore us. Let's pray. God, thank you for mercy and grace that were evident even in the heart of our rebellion. You came back to the garden. You sought us out. You invited us into open repentance and confession to turn away from our hiddenness and from our shame and embrace you and trust you. Uh, in the Christian life, this is what Christ has accomplished for us. And this is the invitation, not just a one and done, like this is what gets me into heaven, but a lifestyle to walk in vulnerability and humility and trust, delighting in your goodness, joyful obedience. We cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit. This is an impossible task. So bring light to our eyes, bring life to our hearts. We ask in the only hope that we have, but it is a certain hope, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.